Father, we thank you again for the privilege of studying your word, of listening to the voice of the Spirit as he has revealed himself in the authoritative canon of Scripture. We ask that the same Holy Spirit that wrote that Scripture teach our hearts tonight. Teach us obedience. Teach us who and what you are like. And that we can indeed worship you through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Um, Tonight we're going to move further into uh, the last part of this chapter. And the chapter stuff that was handed out tonight, it completes the chapter one. That's the end of it. So be sure you have all the notes through. You should have, as of tonight, through chapter, uh, for, uh, page 22 and with some of the footnotes and so on. So that should uh, basically handle uh, the prelude to the first great redemptive event of, of history, uh, in the, in, of post-flood history in the scripture. Um, we're going to look at the text tonight carefully because we want to get into the, some of the structure. Now, because this particular class uh, moves basically from topic to topic, it means that we are not going to concentrate often in, on details of the text. Because remember what we said, we wanted to cover the major ideas of Scripture, the content of our Christian faith, pointing out as we do so the validity of the claims of the Bible, and then also to show that, in fact, um, it encompasses everything in the world. When we talk about the Bible, we're not talking about a nice little sweet religious book. We're talking about a book that is communication from the creator of the universe and has as much to do with physics and mathematics as it has to do with, quote, religious issues. So... That's the, the spirit of which we're doing this. And we keep reiterating the principle that either we will interpret the world by the word or we're going to, by default, let the world interpret the word of God for us according to the world system of interpretation. Um, the other thing that we want to uh, look at and remind ourselves as we go into the text tonight is as we move through these events that great ideas attend all of these. The sinful uh, mind of man tries to suppress this. This is history that's sort of forbidden. It's not politically correct history. And it's not the kind of thing that people like to talk about. But we hold that this history and this memory is embedded indelibly in the cultures of the world. There's not a tribe on the face of the planet that doesn't have at least some memory of these events. Distorted through mythology, maybe yes. But each tribe, each group of mankind has come from Noah who knew all of this. So all of this from Genesis 1 down to Genesis 9 was the possession of every subset of the human race. Now tonight, if you will turn uh, first in your notes, on the bottom of page 13, Uh, We were closing last week with one of the two great uh, points about evidences of high technology. And I'm I'm pointing this out not because we want to get into big technical discussion, but it's because we want to do away with this silly image, and unfortunately sometimes we get it even in Sunday school, that Noah and his people were sort of primitives. Uh, It's very simple... Uh, rural, uh, non-technological people um, that were kind of half-evolved. And to do away with that and challenge that idea, I presented first uh, the evidences of these maps. This is one of the spectacular pieces of evidence that has been found. And, of course, it's so spectacular that it's just incredible as far as the world is concerned. But this is a map of the Antarctica continent. This is a map of the Antarctic continent. If you look closely at both maps, you'll see there's a systematic difference between them. This top one is what we now have by way of mapping. This is a present modern-day map of Antarctica. You'll see the Ross ice shelf here uh, and the little protuberance that extends towards South America. And 
part of this continent, well, there's no, there's no rivers, there's nothing here because it's under ice. There's an ice cap there. And we said while we were talking about the Ice Age that the um, Ice Age, uh, according to a biblical model of, of Michael Ord, he has the Ice Age lasting about 700 years, 500 to max glaciation, 200 years after that for melting down. And during the meltdown phase, uh, the Ice Age was not synchronized. Actually, the uh, freezing of the Antarctic continent came later, both in the Bible concept and also in secular ideas. But what's startling about this map, if you look at it carefully, is there's no Ross Ice Shelf. The other thing that's startling about that map is it has mountains on it. And it indicates that whoever drew that map, and it also has rivers, these rivers extend uh, 100 miles inland. So whoever made that map saw Antarctica before it was frozen. And that map stayed in the tradition of the world, passed on through Alexandria, the great library at Alexandria, passed on down to the Middle Ages, and became distorted and so forth, um, um, and finally wound up in some world maps at the time of Columbus. But the striking fact is that if this dates from the time before the Arctic continent froze. What we have here is a map, a result resulting from probably a concerted series of explorations. I mean, think of how much it takes to map today. I mean, we've got satellite, we've got global positioning systems, we've got all kinds of stuff to do mapping today, and even today to do mapping. I mean, I'm at Aberdeen Proving Ground, we have to map the place every day because of trying to get precision. So think of what was involved here. This map just didn't appear. People must have had to go in, they must have had to map every one of these rivers. It was more than just one or two people in boats. This was a concerted, organized attempt by somebody, some group of the human race, ages and ages ago to get this done. And they did it before the modern climate set in. So after the flood and before things settled down, this map was completed. And it's just a marvelous illustration of the technological competence of Noah and his immediate generation. These were not idiots. These were people who generated civilization overnight. They were geniuses, very high in their technology. Now, the, the notes that we have passed out besides that on page 13, the second interesting point that's not often brought out in world history courses is the fact that Semitic roots seem to appear in all languages. And we'll comment more about this later on in the notes, but the example given at the bottom of page 13 um, by John Cohane, who had done this work. Um, he had originally uh, retired and gone to Ireland. He was one of the people who had a very uh, uh, profitable business and he could retire early. And so he and his wife went to Ireland to live and they did research on the origins of Irish culture and they turned into everywhere they went in the Irish culture, they, they wound up with Jewish words. And they were wondering, what is going on with this? And one thing led to another, and they started finding these words all over the place. Well, on the bottom of page 13, give you an example. There's the, the root, and, and in Semitic languages, like many languages, the key is the consonants, not the vowels. So these languages are written basically in, in consonantal form. If you look at a Hebrew text, for example, um, like for, we, we would use Ebor. He was one of the great patriarchs. Uh -oh. And um, if you look at his, the consonants, it's B-R, and then you have the vowels filling in like this. Well, that's how you look at these stems, and most Hebrew stems have three consonants in them. Some have four and so forth, and you add endings to them, but the stem itself usually has two or three consonants. And what's interesting is that these consonants reoccur in all continents. Now, the one given on page 13 is Ebor occurs as B-R and B-A-R in many, many languages. There's a noun Hebrew. That's where the word Hebrew comes from. It's very interesting. Where, how, where that word start? Well, it seems to have a root in Eber, the name of Abraham and so forth. Then there is the Iberian Peninsula. Now, that's interesting. That's the Spanish Peninsula. Now, why is the, uh, Spain 
have this name deep in its past about that peninsula, peninsula it's called the Iberian Peninsula. So this is the BR again occurring. Uh, there's a river, the peninsula was named from the Ebro River, there's the BR again. Now this goes back to the origins of Spain. And, and he does this on all the consonants. And uh, uh, the, one of the w names for ancient Ireland was Hibernian. And there it is again, that stem, that BR stem. And there's an area which is now known as Georgia, in what it was the uh, Georgia that is in Russia, Soviet Union. Um, and of course, my word processor, when I typed this up, didn't catch up. <laughs> it's all right. Iberia, up on the top of page. Uh, 14 um, is the title of a region now known as Georgia in the Confederation of States of the uh, ex-Soviet Union. So there you have I-B-E-R showing up in the Urals. So how do you explain this? Uh, Cohen traces other words like Adam, Eve, and Eloah, which is the Hebrew from the Elohim, the God. And uh, interesting, I just gave that one because you can see it quickly. In Hawaiian culture, look at the word Hawaii. And notice the word Eve, which has the V in it, which, is, uh, which also is W, because V and W exchange in phonetic structures. You have Eve, and you have a H-A-W-A-H that appears on many continents, particularly in the Pacific, Hawa. And if I, in Hebrew, if you pronounce Eve's name, it's Eva. Or, uh, so, you can see the, the parallel in Hawaii. Uh, there you see the stem in the, in the very word Hawaii. Aloha. And then it's, it's, a, it's a phonetic equivalent to Aloha, which is a Hebrew word for God. So, what he has found is that there's this undercurrent of Semitic stems in all these languages. Uh, one, one linguist he cited did a study of ancient Aztec language and he found that there's a 20% lap over between the Aztec language of Central America and the Hebrew language. Now, why is this? What's going on here? Um, so he concludes, and that's the quote on page 14, in prehistoric times there were two dispersions from the Mediterranean. The first truly worldwide, the second petering out along the eastern coast of the Americas in one direction, in Japan, the Philippines, Australia, New Zealand, in the other direction. This migration was remembered and there was a various gods and goddesses associated with it, but a sign that was used on the North American continent and on the, uh, in the uh, Eastern Hemisphere is the sign of the swastika. Now, of course, for us, that everybody thinks of that as a, as a sign that, of the Nazis. Well, the Nazis didn't originate that. Uh, Hitler took that from this ancient, ancient tradition. And what's fascinating about that tradition is that with very little imagination, you can see that at the center of the swastika was the Middle East. Then it does explain migration patterns very interestingly. With the Kush and the blacks into Africa, with another subset of the blacks going to India, the yellow races going into Oceania, which would be the southeastern Asiatics, the red going up the Urals, migrating across, becoming much of the Indians, and the whites going off into Europe. Now, this is a very oversimplified thing because actually it turns out migration patterns are far, far more complicated than this. I mean, you had whites going in one direction, you had blacks going all over the place, you had reds going all over the place, you had yellows going all over the place. So this is overly simplified. But what's fascinating is this was... This was remembered. This was remembered in many cultures. That sign was tied to the issue of migration. So it's just another one of the unknowns of history. And, and I guess we can summarize this whole thing tonight by saying very little is really authoritatively known here. There's a lot of wide open, gaping questions. And it's not, it's not a closed circuit. The answers haven't all been given. So. Since all this has to do with Genesis now, we want to move to the Genesis text. So let's go back and open our Bibles back to the Genesis text itself. I want to show some of the structure of the text tonight. So if you'll turn to first Genesis 10, verse 1. 
We haven't had a, too much time to comment about the structure. But there's several things to remember about the Genesis text. One is that Moses was the final editor of this, so it has to be read in the light of the fact that the first readers of this book were the Jews as they were going into Palestine in the conquest. So this tips us off to certain things. For example, the language that describes Ham and and, and his, his, the incident with Ham and Noah. If you look at the verse that describes that, that same verse describes the behavior of the Canaanites toward which they were going. So, you see that there's, there's their memory there. And anybody who was in the Canaanite generation would have read the Ham-Noah story and would have seen that and recognized immediately the connection with Canaan. So that's why we have to learn kind of mentally to read the Genesis narrative as we would have read it had we been in that Exodus generation. This was a background for our relationships at that time. Now, one of the features of the Genesis text is in chapter 10, verse 1, you see this, um, this formula. And the formula goes like, somewhat like this. Um, these are the generations of X. Let me show you how that formula recurs again and again. Hold the place in Genesis 10. Turn back to Genesis 2. Uh, let's, no, let's, let's go back to Genesis 5. Genesis 5 clear example. Genesis 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of, of God. Now that you've got that down, now go back to Genesis 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth, when in it, literally, in the day that they were created, in the day the Lord God made heaven and earth. So, there, there's a formula there. Now, in that case, the word generation doesn't occur, but you can see the parallels between chapter 2, verse 4, chapter 5, verse 1. And notice chapter 5, verse 1, it's the generations of Adam. In other words, the progeny of Adam. And so, after Genesis 5, verse 1, what do you read? You read about all of his progeny and the adventures and things that happened. And then we come to Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. And in Genesis chapter 6, lo and behold, here's the formula recurring again. So whoever composed this text had this formula in mind. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, these are the records of the generations of Noah. And then it goes on to describe no adventures that have to do with Noah and his children. Then we come uh, to Genesis chapter 10, verse 1, which we have just seen. And we continue past Genesis chapter 10, verse 1, over to Genesis chapter 11, verse 10. And at Genesis chapter 11, verse 10, you read, and these are the generations of Shem. Now, what do you notice is happening every time X occurs in the formula? Let's list it down, see if we can see what's going on here. First, you have the heavens and the earth. Then you have Adam. Then you have Noah. Then you have uh, Shem. And, uh, well, Genesis chapter 10, verse 1, I think. What would we say there? Those are the generations of uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, if you write all that out and look at it, what's happening? Well, every time the formula occurs, what do you notice is progressing, that's happening here? What's the scope? What's going on here? First you have the heavens and the earth, universal scope, the universe. Then we come to Adam, that narrows it down to man. And the next time the formula occurs, it's Noah, who starts civilization. Then the next time it happens, it's Noah's sons. The next time it happens, is Shen. The other two sons have been eliminated from the view. Now, this is the sort of thing that makes interpretation of the scripture objective. This isn't how I feel about the text. It's not what I feel. It's the structure of the literature. 
It's telling us something here. And what we want to look at is that between this act and this act, this is where we are tonight in Genesis 10 and 11. So whatever's going on in Genesis 10 and 11, it is the last time the scriptures concentrate on all three sons equally. And after this, the scripture now narrows down to Shem. So the question logically to ask is, are the events of chapter 10 and 11, do they have something to do with the fact that the Holy Spirit is now focusing on this guy, leaving these other two guys kind of unnoticed? What, what is the meaning of what's going on in Genesis 10 and 11 in the overall structure of how, the, how this text is moving? Okay, so that's kind of the background. So now let's look at, from Genesis 10, we have a block now. Now we can isolate the text. So we, the, what I'm trying to do is warn you that chapter divisions are late additions to the text. When Jesus read his Old Testament, he didn't have chapters like we do. These were the divisions. That's what we're looking at. So these are far more ancient and far more original in the text than the chapter divisions. Chapter divisions just editors that did that. So what we want to do now is isolate the text from Genesis chapter 1. We now have a block of text that goes to chapter 11, verse 9. So that's a defined block of text that the original authors of this scripture said there's a coherent unity in this, in this block of text. So what are we going to do about that block? Well, let's look further. We want to start observing the block of text. Again, we'll write it out here so we can see it. From chapter 10, verse 1, that block ends at chapter 11, verse 9. Now let's skim that text and see if you notice something. Notice that before it begins is the Noah story, verse by verse by verse. All right, what do you observe, starting in verse 1? Don't, don't try to read all the details, but just let your eye drift down rapidly from verse after verse after verse after verse, all the way down to the end of chapter uh, 10, say. And then go on to chapter 11 and look at verse 9. If you were to subdivide this block of text, where would you divide it? In terms of its structure, to, to break it up into sections. Where would you put a section. It, it goes, it has the sort of structure in chapter 10, sort of. And then what do you notice happens when you get into chapter 11? What's different about the way the text is laid out? Anybody? Feel free to participate. Okay, there's a structural difference in the text from chapter 10, verse 1, down to the end of that chapter, which is verse 32. Do you notice it's very kind of genealogical, so-and-so, this and that, and it's all this and begat somebody and that and so forth. Then all of a sudden you come to chapter 11, verse 1 through 9. Is it talking any more about genealogy? It's talking about an event that happened. So now we can break the text up into those sections. Alright, now let's go back to the first unit, the first subunit. Call this A and this B. Let's go to unit A and scan it again and see if you don't notice something interesting about the structure of those 32 verses. Do you notice where the text is, think of it as a piece of music and it has a beat to it and it goes and it goes. Where do you notice the rhythm changes? If you can think of it in a musical sense. Where? Verse 5. Okay, in verse 5 there's a little like it stops and there's a kind of annotation there in verse 5. Okay? That's good. Good observation. So we come down, we have now we've got 1 to 5 verses. Now, starting at 6, things go on, and where, do, where does the rhythm sort of change? 
What happens in verse 8 and 9 and 10? See that genealogical pattern? It pauses there, doesn't it? There's something going on that, that halts the march forward from generation to generation. There's something that's, that's happened here. So in verse 8, all the way down through, um, say, verse 12, from 8 to 12, we'll call this uh, 6 on, but we'll have a little note out there. From 8 to 12, there's something going on. It's just as there was something going on in 5. The first block ends with 5 with a, with, a, with a formula. Do you notice that 5 says, From these, the coastlands of the nations were separated in their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, and then into their nations. Where do you see that formula recur next in the text? Anyone? Keep going, verse 14... Uh, 20, right. So, the formula that we saw in 5 reappears at 20. So, that ought to signal that we can make that into a block of text. Each of these sub-blocks ends with that formula. So, the first part of the text ends with a summary that so-and-so divided. Then it comes down and stops in verse 20 and says so-and-so divided. All right, now, look from verse 21 down and where do you see the formula again? 31. And these are the sons of Jem, according to their families, according to their language, by the lands, according to their nations. And then verse 32 sort of summarizes all of it. So you have the next block of text from 21 to 31, and then 32 is a sort of grand summary. Um, there's a, just as we saw the note in verses 8 through 12, and we saw that uh, where do you, you see any other kind of things where the rhythm shifts a little bit? As though the man is putting a footnote in and just wants to explain something. Look back down, verse 14, 15. Start marching forward from verse 14, 15, 16, and what happens? Where do you see it? Cut up a note put in there about activity going on. 19, right. So, in 19, you have a little something going on. And uh, anything between 21 and 30? 25. There's a little something going on. Okay? See how fascinating Bible study can be? When you observe the text and observe the structures here in the text. Now what we want to do, that we've made some observations, now we want to come back and digest them a little bit. We've gotten this subsection A. We've divided subsection A into one two, and three. What do we say subsection A began with? What was that formula that started back in verse 1? What did verse 1 tell us we were going to see? The generations of the sons of Noah, remember? And there were three, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. What do you notice about this first block of material? Who is that concerned with? Japheth. So the first block is the first son. Now what's, who's concerned with the second block? From verses 6 through 20. That's Ham. And the last one is Shem. So that makes sense. So already we're getting into the structure of the text now. Very objective. It's not how we feel. It's just the inherent structure of the text. The author said he's going to tell us about Ham, Shem, and Japheth. What does he do? He tells us about all three sons. And he concludes in verse 32. Now, how would you summarize the thought of this chapter? If you just had that kind of, you know, a sentence. How would you express what's going on here? In fact, it's already expressed for us. All you'd have to do is quote verse 32, wouldn't you? Because between verse 1 and verse 32, just those two verses tell us what's going to happen and they tell us what, what happened. And the military, they always tell you a good briefing starts out, you tell people what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. 
And that's basically the structure of this piece of text. What is the theme? What is the word that you would summarize if you would take a verb, an action? What would you summarize that, that summarizes um, the majority of motion in chapter 10? What verb would you pick? Hmm? Migration, okay? In his words, the word scattering. So, the theme here is a scattering of the people away from where? Where did the ark land? Ararat, eastern Turkey. And it's a story of the scattering in the, in the, uh, into the earth. Now, what had God told Noah in chapter 9 that he wanted man to do? What did he say back in... Um, Verse 1 of chapter 9. Told him to fill the earth, didn't he? Oh, that's interesting. Do you suppose chapter 10 is related to chapter 9? Chapter 10 narrates the fulfillment of chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 10 follows very neatly because God said, I want you guys to do this. Chapter 10 reports that it has been done. But on the way, there's an adventure that occurs. And we all know, because we've read Genesis 11, 1 to 9, how does the scattering occur? That's the fulfillment of chapter 9, verse 1. Does it occur because men were so excited to obey God that they just had to go out there and migrate all over the place? You know, they saluted and said, yes, sir, and did it. Or did mankind have to be kicked in the nether parts in order to migrate and fill the earth. Do you see a parallel with the church in the book of Acts? Jesus told that we're supposed to be witnesses into every area. And where was the church for the first eight chapters in Acts? In Palestine. Not doing anything. How did God get the church out of Palestine? Remember? Persecution. So here we have a fulfillment of God's command, but no credit to man because he fulfilled it in disobedience. The filling of the earth was a profound act of rebellion and disobedience and God literally had to kick in order to drive men into the continents. That is the background for this strange thing at Babel, which we want to think about. Because the rest of chapter 1, we're going to deal with what is going on with this Babel thing. Now, your notes on page 14, that's what we're getting at here, is that the filling of the earth is occurring in this chapter. and verse 31. Look at those three verses and look at the four ways that mankind is described in each of those formulas. Let's write them down. What's the first way? It says, let's just take verse 5. They were separated into their lands. Okay. Next. By their tongue. Next. By their families and nations. Now, just to check, look at the formula in verse 20. The four words occur, but they occur in a different order. What's the first one there? Families. So, the families occur in this one. And what's the next one? Tongues. Next one. Okay, their countries, their lands, and nations. Now let's go to the formula in, in, in verse 31. Families, tongues, whoops, no, where am I? Am I okay? Families, tongues, lands, and nations. Now, this is Japheth, this is Ham, and this is Shem. What do you notice about Japheth? When the Japhetics, when Japheth's domain is presented in Scripture, what comes to mind apparently first in the mind of this author? They're spread out into their 
land. And if you look carefully at Genesis chapter 10, verse 1, you'll notice a little, a little note there. And it says in verse 5, from these, the coastlands of the nations, or I don't know what some of your other translations have, but, um, what do they have? The isles? The borders? So, it's interesting that of the three sons of Noah, the one that seems relative to the biblical writer to have gone the furthest and the farthest is Japheth. He seems to have gone out into the lands and the continents. And the other two spread out also, but the emphasis there is more on their families, their tribes, as though the tribes are closer and they, they knew of the differences. Whereas it, it seems like Japheth went so far away that his, the tribal structure isn't well known about. And also, if you count the verses, what do you also notice about Japheth? Very small. Japheth gets lost very quickly. Uh, and so he's gone somewhere. And, and his people are so far away from the Middle East that they really aren't crucial to the rest of biblical history. So there's a trend here that we want to observe. Now, after all this grand scheme, it turns out that if you count the number of names in Genesis 10, count all the sons and so forth in here, and it comes up with 70. Does that remind you of anything? Hold the place here and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Chapter 32, verse 8. This is a commentary. Remember what we did last year? We said when you're reading Genesis 1 to 9, always look to see how the rest of the Bible interprets the text. You don't have to guess. How did the rest of the authors of the Bible look back and interpret that text? Well, here Moses, in Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, he's looking back at the migration, at the scattering. And what does he say? When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of men, he set the boundaries of the people according to what number? The number of the sons of Jacob, who were 70 in the last chapter of Genesis. Now, isn't that an interesting thing? Now, let me just pause here and warn you about something. If you ever get in a class in college somewhere and you start studying the Bible's literature, professors, they see this structure too. But their interpretation of what we've just done is that this is a phony structure imposed by the author on, the, on real history. In other words, real history doesn't have structure. It's just kind of a marbles. And the author, in or he wants structure, so the author sort of makes history fit this, this structural mold. Now, if you think about it, it sounds very persuasive when they say it, but if you think about it, what does that tell you about what that person thinks about history? That it has no structure. You see, the Bible surprises us that we look upon such a thing as this, the diffusion of the human race, and we, we think of it statistically, as though there's you know, millions of people scattered around. My goodness, you can never tell who belongs to what anymore. But the point is that when God structured this, even the chaos, from the human point of view, it was not a planned effort, right? The only planning you see in here is how not to do it. Isn't that the human plan? That's Babel. That's the Tower Project. So man's plans were to thwart God's will. That's what the plan was. Well, it didn't work out because God is a perfect chess master and he aced them. So he moved the human race out, but lo and behold, in the chaos of moving out, the human race had a 70-fold structure. And that's related to the structure of Israel. Now, why is that supposed... Why would this be of concern to a person reading the Old Testament, particularly a Jew in the Exodus generation? Think of yourself as a Jew moving out in the Exodus. Here you are... This is a new nation. Boy, are you hot. Are you a controversial topic? You are a new nation. Never existed before. What's one of the questions you're going to have? The meaning of your existence in the rest of the nations. 
So what does, Genesis, what does Deuteronomy 32.8 say? It says that Israel is somehow related to the structure of the rest of the human race. That God has built the nation Israel to some sort of be some sort of counterpoint or some relationship with the rest of these nations. All right, let's look further. Let's go on. We've, we've looked at the text now. Let's go on to block B. And we come to the, to the Babel issue. And by the way, on page 15 of your notes, where I list Deuteronomy 32.8 up at the top half of the page, you'll also see I give you Genesis 46.27, so you can verify it for yourself that there were 70. The text is very careful in Genesis 46 to say there were 70 people that came out of Egypt. One other note that I mention in the notes that you should be aware of, look at uh, Genesis chapter 10 before we go any further. Let's look at um, verse 11, 12, and 13. Genesis chapter 10, verses 11, 12, and 13 for a moment. A little warning here. Genesis chapter 10 is known in history as the table of the nations. That's the official name that, if you want to see in scholarly circles, that's what it's known as, the table of the nations. If any of you in your homes have Young's Analytical Concordance, there's a precious essay, either in the front or the rear of that concordance. I haven't looked at it in years. But Young's Analytical Concordance has an interesting comment on the table of nations by Dr. William F. Albright, who for many years was the dean of American archaeology right here in Baltimore in Johns Hopkins. Now, he was not a Bible-believing Christian when he first started. And the more discoveries that Dr. Albright made, the more he realized that the biblical text is historically accurate. And he came to write that essay that's preserved in Young's Analytical Concordance toward the end of his life. And it's an interesting comment that Dr. Albright has about this table of nations. What a unique document. I think he says in that essay that nowhere else in the literature of the world do you ever, ever have a document like this. No other people on the planet ever preserved a universal history of the human race. What you find when you go to the Greeks, or what you find when you go to the Indians, or what you find when you go to the Europeans, is great histories about themselves. But only in Israel do you have in the Bible a history of all humanity together. Okay, so that's Genesis chapter 10. Now we come to the block B, this event that occurs. The tantalizing issue that we have to deal with is, is block B somehow related to those comments we observed going on earlier in Genesis 10? Remember we said, look at these strange things going on here in in verses 8 through 12, and look at the strange thing reported in verse 25. Are those interruptions in the flow of Genesis 10 about the same sort of thing that Genesis 11, 1 to 9 is talking about? In other words, is this Babel project, is that what's talking about splitting up the nations and so forth? That's something that you have to deal with, interpretation. What we want to tonight to move on to this last part where it seems to represent... Oh, excuse me. I had you turn to verses, um, Genesis 10, 11, 12, and 13 for a point that I wanted to make. Genesis 10, Table of Nations, is not, strictly speaking, a genealogy. If you want to see a genealogy, look at the structure of Genesis 5 and Genesis 11 after verse 9. That's a genealogy. So-and-so begot so-and-so who begot so-and-so who begot so-and-so. If you look in the formula in Genesis 10, it's, it's looser. It's not so one-to-one-ish. And in particular, in verses 11, 12, and 13, particularly verse 13, you'll see that one of the sons is called Mitzrayim. Well, Mitzrayim, obviously in verse 13, is talking about one son because he became the father. But yet, on the other hand, you'll notice Mitzrayim ends with this ending, I am. And in Hebrew, that's a plural ending. You'll notice in verse 13, all the nouns are ending in I am. They're plurals. They're groups of peoples. So the question arises is, yes, they may have been sons, but in the memory of the writer who, who authored this, he's thinking not just of Mitzrayim as an individual, he's thinking of Mitzrayim as the fountain of this group 
called Mitzrayim, and if you have studied Old Testament, who are the Mitzrayim? They are the Egyptians. So, so the issue there is that whoever, Mitzrayim is a noun that applies both to the sun and to the nation itself. And what did we observe? There were four ways that these, this thing was categorized. Lands, tongues, families, and nations. So the names, while they refer to sons in one sense, are also sometimes referring to nations. Um, another example of that would be, if you look at... Um, where else do we see that thing? I saw that before. Oh, yes. If you look at verse... 16, 17, and 18. Those are more than sons. Those are nouns that refer to entire nations. So, once again, there's this quadratic structure of, of the text. So, we can summarize Genesis 10, 1 to 32, as telling us that the human race diverged. Now, in chapter 11, verse 1 to 9, how did it diverge? What was the means? Now, again, let's pause for just a minute and look at something. Remember back last year when we dealt with Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, people asked the question, I always get this question, and I should, because if you study in school, this is what they tell you, oh, there's two conflicting accounts of creation in Genesis. And they always say, well, there's seven days of creation in Genesis 1, and then in Genesis 2 it's talking about man and Adam and Eve being created. And what did we say last year? That the style of narration in, these, in the Hebrew text here is very much like if you were writing a story for Baltimore Sun or something in a newspaper. You ever notice how a news story... News stories are not written chronologically, are they? What does a news writer do in his first paragraph? He tries to summarize the whole story, doesn't he? And then what does he do in paragraph 2, 3, 4, and 5? And then he goes back and rehashes details. Well, that's the way the Bible is written. You have the big story in Genesis 1, then you go back in Genesis 2, rehash the details of the sixth day, in particular the creation of man. Well, now here, in this block of text from Genesis 10.1 to 11.9, you have the migration of man, the, the destiny of the three sons of Noah. Remember, that's the theme. You have the big idea in chapter 10, and now in chapter 11 we come in and zoom in for a close-up shot of a particular event that occurred during that era. Now, one of the, one of the observations I mentioned about it, we should be making, you should be making when you read the text like this, is this is taking five centuries between the time of Noah and Abraham. Five centuries. Think of all the different things that must have happened in five centuries. We just went through the map of Antarctica. All those expeditions to Antarctica was, were done. Mapped the world built the Great Pyramids in both Western and Eastern Hemispheres. So lots of things to talk about in 500 years. Here's the clinker. Why did the Holy Spirit not choose those events and did choose this event? Why, of all the things that happened in those five centuries, is the Tower of Babel mentioned and nothing else? Well, obviously, it tells you that from the Holy Spirit's point of view, there's something about the Tower of Babel that's more important than the pyramids, it's more important than the exploration, more important than the Ice Age, more important than all of these other things combined. He wants to teach us something happened at the fountain and origin of civilization that we must learn about. Because, as you'll see, the heading on the notes for next time is that the issue theologically going on here is how did all this grand potential in Noah get derailed? Such that in the New Testament, when, Satan, when, God, when Jesus is tempted by Satan, who does Satan say? What, what is the temptation, the third one? Bow down to me, because I rule the kings of the world. And we call it, the New Testament writers refer to the world system as the cosmos. The world system. The old-fashioned fundamentalists used to say the world, the flesh, and the devil. Something is worldly. And that was a term used to be used in fundamental circles. Worldliness. What do I mean by worldliness? Blending in with a theme of our environment. And so the question here is, what went wrong? Something profound went wrong spiritually when civilization began. And it goes all the way back to those founding centuries. It wasn't technology went wrong, built great pyramids. It wasn't exploration that went wrong, 
Something else went wrong. So with that in mind, let's observe the text in verses 1 through 9. What things strike you as uh, unusual? What is the first thing that strikes you that is obviously not true today? The whole earth of one language. Now that is a, a profound observation. The whole world was of one language. Now, remember I told you back, one of the habits of thinking about the scriptures as a mature Christian, one of the things you want to do is don't take pieces of truth out of the Bible like marbles or bits of a necklace. Think of them as pieces of beads on a necklace that's woven into a pattern. If we believe Noah's story, what would be logical as to how many languages his son spoke? If the entire civilization came off one boat, is it unexpected to have one language? Why would you have 15 languages when you only had eight people on the boat? So, this fits, doesn't it? The first verse of chapter 11 fits with the theme that the whole human race came from a small family. They all spoke the same language. There hadn't been linguistic diversity up until then. However, Genesis 10, what did we read there? Tongue, tongue, tongue. So, the Genesis 10 process, something happened to fracture the languages. So, this is the answer to what happened to fracture the languages. As you look at the text, and if we can build a bridge and say that what we're observing in chapter 11, verse 1 to 9, is actually connected to this notation back here. Remember we made the notation? Verses 8 to 12, something funny was going on with Nimrod. Where did you notice was the location of the something funny going on with Nimrod? Where was the beginning of his kingdom? First of all, notice the word kingdom. Underline that one. That's the first occurrence of that word in the Bible. The first kingdom mentioned is a bad thing. Not a good thing. Okay, so we have the kingdom, and where was the first kingdom? At Babel, which is another synonym for a word that occurs later in the Bible, all the way down into the book of Revelation. What is it? The great evil city of all time, Babylon. So that's interesting. So right at the origin of civilization, whatever this strange event was, it occurred at Babylon, which is reflected upon in Revelation. Now, in chapter 11, verses 1 to 9, what do you notice about the spirit, the spirituality that was going on? How would you characterize in verse 3 and 4? What is glaringly obvious from the text about the spirit in which this project was entertained? It was an engineering project. The human race represented in this great grand view. But what is the motive behind it? What, do you, what leads you to suspect there's something wrong here? First of all, let's look at the purpose clause at the end of verse 4. What are they trying to thwart? Lest we be scattered across the face of the earth. What did God say in Genesis 1, 9, 1? That's what I want you to do, guys. So right away, we have a purpose clause to thwart the word of God in chapter 9, verse 1. That purpose clause at the end of verse 4 is a diagrammatic opposition to Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. God said, fill the earth, and they said, we don't want to. Then they said, we want to, instead of filling the earth, we want to make for ourselves a name. Now, if anybody, this is a profound thought, and I don't pr pretend at all in the notes to have mastered this. This is something for you to chew on for years. Why, if you visualize yourself involved in that grand building project, why do you think building a tower and making a name for yourself is going to help you not go into all the world? What's the process going on here? These people all get together. I mean, great effort. You can imagine this engineering project. Now, it says that let's make it reach unto heaven. That idiom, fortunately, occurs elsewhere in the Bible. We can check it out. 
Deuteronomy 1, the cities and the land said they made their walls unto heaven. It's just an idiom for big, big tall structure. So, it was a massive, massive undertaking. In, uh, on the notes, um, I think I do it on the notes that are... Um, no, page 16, I have that quote. Here's a quote from Josephus. Two quotes on, on page 16. By the way, some of the footnotes got out of sync with the end notes. The numbers, I think number three or four or five, somewhere early on, there's a duplicate number, so some of the end notes don't fit the numbers here, but someday when I edit it, it'll work out. Um, we don't have much time tonight, so let's just look at that quote in the middle of the top half of, of page 16. This is Josephus reporting, and where he's getting the information is ancient Jewish tradition. This is not the infallible scripture, but it does show you how the Jews thought about the Tower of Babel. This is confirmed by Jewish tradition through Josephus. Nimrod persuaded them not to ascribe it to God, as if it was through his means they were happy, but to believe that it was their own courage which procured that happiness. He also gradually changed the government into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God, but to bring them into constant dependence upon his power. What did he build? He built a kingdom. And you'll notice something else in a quote from Josephus. The Tower of Babel itself, according to Josephus, was to secure men against another flood judgment, being made of burnt bricks, cemented together with mortar, made of bitumen, that it might not be liable to admit water. Now, if that's so, what does that tell you that was spiritually going on in the psyche of the human race at this time? What was their concern? They were afraid of the power physically of God, were they not? Now, if that's so, they were afraid of a flood. What does that tell you something? What had God just done in a contract? What was the heart of the whole contract with the human race? They wouldn't send a flood. So what are they concerned about a flood for? Why do you suppose they might be concerned about the flood? Might they be concerned as covenant breakers? That the God who had made the covenant... Just as I broke the covenant on my end, he's going to break it on his. See, the guilty conscience starts to ascribe things to God that are not true. And this is done race-wide. Every race on earth is implicated here. This is not a white man, a black man, a red man, or a yellow man. This is all men that are involved in the Tower of Babel project. It says the whole earth was involved here. This harps back to an ancient sin at the root of civilization itself. And it constantly manifests itself, and we're going to study more on it next week, if you will read on, on pages 16 and 17. Look particularly on page 16 how the theme of Babylon goes on and on and on in Scripture all the way to the return of Christ. Mankind always wants to build projects. And the projects always have to do somehow with getting security for himself and if you look back on verse 4, at least we can say this about verse 4. Let us make for ourselves a name must at least mean this. That I, finite man, generates my own meaning of my life by myself without external interference from God. What it is, is a flagrant, rebellious statement by finite creature that I define my existence. And I will define my existence and I will make my existence watertight against any interfering God in my life. And when I can live in my castle and I can know that whatever I do is protected, that I define my way in my life and He can't interfere with it, now I'm happy. You see what we're talking about here? This is not some immorality. This is deeper than that. This is a profound, arrogant pride. And what the Bible seems to be teaching us here, the reason the Holy Spirit picked out the Babel Project, was that it was here that civilization is defined for us from God's point of view. And this has something to do with why he had to call Abraham out of Babylon, out of Ur, out of to another land, and begin to develop something new. 
because all of the human race is contaminated. It's not saying that the human race was stupid. It's, they were brilliant. It's not saying they were ugly. They were beautiful. But there's something wrong structurally and spiritually that has infected our civilization. And it's that that God and the rest of the Old Testament will attack again and again and again, over and over and over again. It's not your kingdom, it's my kingdom. Then we hear about the kingdom of God. Only after first we've heard about the kingdom of man. So, these are, this is where we're going. and it, I, I want you to think about this and look carefully at the notes. If you have any insights, we'll talk about it and uh, discuss it because what we're trying to do here is get a basis for our approach to the Old Testament. What is the Old Testament all about? Father, we thank you for our time tonight and we thank you that you do provide for man that you have provided in grace for every one of our needs. And it's so fallacious for us to rebelliously think that we're going to create our own meaning, create our own life, and do it independently of you when every breath we take is a result of oxygen supplied by your creation. In Christ's name, amen.